Okay, the passage that we are considering here this afternoon comes from the Gospel of Luke. So if you happen to have your Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 22. Um, A.V., um, Sean, if you'll take note of this, um, I was going to begin reading at verse 1. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to draw attention to some of those opening verses in the sermon itself as part of the context. So I'd like to, if you go to verse 14, you go to verse 14, we'll start there. Very good. And... Uh, we're going to read through verse 23, and then also what we're doing is we're, we're, we're continuing in our catechetical series, um, taking a look at, as a kind of a follow-up from last week, the, the doctrine or the teaching of God's providence. And if you remember, if you were here last week, we looked at providence, the teaching of providence as this, that when we say, when we talk about providence, we're saying that providence is, is the Almighty and ever-present power of God, whereby, as it were, with his hand, God upholds and he governs or he rules over all things that happen in our lives and in the events of this world so that nothing comes by chance, but all things come from the hand of God. So what we're really confessing is that we don't believe in chance, random happenings on one hand, but we don't believe in fate either as just something that happens in our lives as a result of impersonal forces beyond our control. But we, we think about this. Whenever, kids, whenever you think of providence, just, just think of this. Think, think of, not my hand, but God's hand, directing all things, okay? Um, and we, 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 we see actually uh, an example of that in our passage here this afternoon. I just want to add this one thing. Um, what, we're, what we're doing is we're, we're kind of, we, we, we defined the doctrine of providence last week, but now what we're doing is we're applying that teaching to the adversity that we experience in our lives upon occasion and the evil that we see in the world. And so in some ways, this is kind of, it's going to be somewhat of a uh, deeply doctrinal or theological sermon, but it's going to be eminently practical because we all face adversity in our lives, and we all see evil in our world every day, and we just sense there's a heaviness in the, in the culture around us, and what are we supposed to do with that? Because, because God controls all things, even the evil that happens in the world, and if that's the case, well, then all of a sudden things start going on in your head, like, well, then does that mean that God's the origin of evil? And that God's responsible for evil? Or are we responsible? And if we are responsible, then why is that if we're only carrying out the providential will of God in our lives? You know, stuff like that. It's called the problem of evil question. And we're going to be considering that um, this afternoon. So, um, Luke chapter 22, verse 14. Um, this occurs at the time of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. This is the night before Jesus was betrayed. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Now notice especially verse 22. For the Son of Man, Jesus is referring to himself here, 
For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who is going to do this. And I'm going to, I'm going to draw your attention back to verse 22 in just a moment. Um, all right, question answer 28. And what I want to do is, as we typically do here, I'll read the question and then let's uh, confess the answer together. What does it benefit us? Okay, now it's dealing with the practical consequences of the doctrine of providence. What does it benefit us to know that God created all things and still upholds them by his providence? Let's say together, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Now, Sean, keep that up there if you would. And I want you to take a look at the overhead. I want to draw your attention um, back to the very first phrase in this answer, which is, we can be patient in adversity. It's... Um, so basically, it's saying that if, if, if it's true that the Bible teaches and we confess together that all things are orchestrated by God, and that too, not just the good things that happen in the world, but the bad things that happen in the world, well, then when bad things happen to us, when we experience adverse circumstances or difficult circumstances in our life, we can be patient during those difficult times, not, not just fall into great despair and give up, but we can be patient. Why? Because we know that God's hand is directing all things, and because that's the case, well, then God must have a purpose. Now, we may not always know what that purpose is, but nonetheless, we can trust that God has a purpose in the good things that we face, but also in the difficulties that we face. So that's why the catechism begins. We can be patient in adversity and also thankful in prosperity. I want to I draw your attention also to this. that This, this catechetical document that we go through, um, the more and more you become familiar with this, and if you ever have the opportunity to teach through it, like for instance in a Bible study or a catechism class or teaching younger people, you very soon realize just how rooted in the Bible this document is. And the genius of this catechetical document that we have is that it really provides, on the basis of the Bible, a faithful and very understanding summary of the Christian faith. Okay? So, we've got to be big on this document. Okay? We can't just view it as, oh, this is just some old document. I know people sometimes, maybe because it might be preached in a stuffy way, kind of go like, or taught in a stuffy way, they're not very big on the document. But, but what we should be, and I hope to demonstrate that also, um, this, uh, this afternoon. Now again, th this document says, because of the providential hand of God, um, we may be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity, know that, knowing that God has a purpose in all things. Now, when our document says that, um, it's simply reiterating what we find in the Bible. So I want to cite a text for you from Ecclesiastes 7 verse 14. It goes like this, in the day of adversity, or no, in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, recount or remember that God has made one as well as the other. Now, did you listen to that? It just doesn't say God knows, but he, or observes, but he, he makes 
He makes both prosperity as well as adversity. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14. Now, the interesting thing here is this, that when you look at Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14 in the Hebrew language, the word that is used for adversity there is a word that you will find frequently in the Old Testament, ra, just ra in the Hebrew, which actually most often is interpreted as evil. So, in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity or evil, consider that God has made one as well as the other. And you're like, wait a minute. That almost sounds heretical, doesn't it? God, God makes prosperity. We have no problem with that. But God actually, the word there is he makes, or bara, he creates in the Hebrew. He creates evil. And we see that elsewhere in the Bible. For instance, Isaiah 45, verse 7, and other places, for instance... Just give me a second here. Um, this comes to mind. And I was just reading this, actually, in my own Bible reading um, yesterday from the, the book of Job. And if you grow up in the Christian faith, you know that Job was a figure where the very first thing the Bible says is he was a blameless man, and yet God puts him in the midst of great adversity. In fact, he even allows Satan to have his way with Job. And as a result of that, Job experiences great pain in his life, including the death even of his own children and the loss of his own health. And Job's like, Lord, why is this happening? I've been a righteous man and I'm not sinning against you. And all his friends are going, no, 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 you did sin against God. And Job's like, I, I, I don't understand this. And Job is left with mystery. And so in a sense, he's, he's, he's wanting an answer from God. Why is this adversity happening to me? And then you remember, if you know this book, at the very end, the sovereign God comes to him in a whirlwind. And in the midst of this whirlwind, Job realizes just how little he understands of the ways of God. He's left with mystery. He's never really given an answer. And at the very end, Job says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's talking to God. You are the one who hides counsel without knowledge. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. There are things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's called the problem of evil question. And it, it, is, it is a difficult question. We have to recognize that as Christians because we're going like, okay, if, if we do believe that God is sovereign and he controls all that comes to pass, well, then that also includes evil? We go, yeah. Well, if that's the case, then is not God himself the originator of that evil, the author of evil, and isn't he to be held actually responsible for that evil? And the answer is no, no, no. Human beings are responsible for evil, but then why is that the case when God orchestrates all things? How can he blame us? He's the one who's behind it all. You see the difficulty? Yeah, I told you we're going to kind of get in some doctrinal theology, you know, deep, deep stuff. Well, let's, let's go on to fill this out a little bit more, and uh, there's many facets to that. We'll, we'll try to fill in some of those things. All right, so Luke chapter 22. Um, very quickly, it's the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is, first of all, celebrating the Passover, and then in fulfillment of the Passover, he's celebrating the Lord's Supper. And what we see at this time, the night before Jesus crucified, you, got, you have certain forces that are arrayed against Jesus. First of all, what you have is you have, you have the pre, uh, chief priests and the elders. In other words, you have these religious leaders who want to put Jesus to death. 
And the reason why they want to put Jesus to death is because they are jealous of him. They think that Jesus is engaging in blasphemy, and they are concerned, really, that he's a heretic, and there's a number of individuals among the Jewish people who are going after Jesus, after this popular figure, and they're concerned about that, so they want Jesus put to death. But they're not the only ones. Because behind this all is also Satan himself. And then in addition to the religious leaders, and in addition to... Uh, Satan, you have one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, who we know is the great traitor, right? So you got these forces arrayed against Jesus. Take a look at, uh, uh, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 3, we read, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. So he's one of Jesus' disciples. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them, And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray to them in the absence of a crowd. So again, to reiterate, you have dark forces arrayed against Jesus. You have religious leaders, you have Satan, and you have Judas. Then as you move on in the passage, you see Jesus celebrating the Passover and the fulfillment of the Passover, namely the Lord's Supper. And then, during the time of the Supper, Jesus says this, verse 21 and 22, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Now, especially verse 22, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom, and he's referring to Judas here, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now, if you're reading in your Bibles at home and you're reading this and you take just a bit of time to reflect on this, you get it. it there, there's something intuitive going on inside of you probably where you go, this is more than just about Jesus and Judas, right? This is more about, well, the role that God plays and the role that humans play in terms of the evil that happens in the world because we know that what Judas did with Jesus in that betrayal was one of the most evil acts of all of history And yet, this too, apparently, is not outside the control of God. Remember, these are the words of Jesus, so how are we really supposed to deal with this? Well, what I want to do, for the sake of time, is I want to just deal with verse 22, and it's it's really divided into two clean parts. you got the first part where it says, the Son of Man goes that hasn't been determined, and the second part, relating to Judas, is woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So, let's deal with that first phrase. For the Son of Man, Jesus is... So we have two men mentioned in verse 22. You've got the Son of Man, there's a reference to Jesus, and particularly the humanity of Jesus. And then what we have is the man Judas. So first of all, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, everything that has transpired in my life and is transpiring right now, and what will transpire in the future... Whether it be the blessings of ministry, but especially the hardships, my suffering, and my crucifixion, which is coming up tomorrow, and all the pains and all the torturous difficulties with that, Jesus says, it's all been determined. In other words, what is happening to me and what's transpiring in my life is not something that just happens to be occurring to me. This is a part of the overall plan of God. It's all been determined. That's, that's what the text says. Deal with the wording of the text. It's been determined. It has been determined. Now, what's kind of interesting here is that this word that Jesus uses here for determined, and again, remember, this is a catechetical series, so it's more of a a teaching type of sermon. That's good. We have the word determined is used um, at other times in the Bible, and it's it's interpreted in other places as predetermined or preplanned, we could say. 
So Jesus is saying, everything that's happened to me has been determined by whom? Well, obviously God has been pre-planned by God. Really, if you want to dig into this, what Jesus is saying is, everything that's happened to me has been planned. It started in eternity with my Father. It is taking place in time through the foreshadowings and through the predictions and prophecies of the Old Testament, and now it's being fulfilled in my life. And what's very interesting is that when you take what the Bible says about the life and the times of Jesus, you see, if you pay close attention to it, that Jesus himself was very self-consciously aware that what was going on in his life, things that he was receiving, but things that he was actively doing in his ministry was part of the overall plan of his father. Everything. Oftentimes in Jesus, you will see him, or you will hear him say, or you will read him say, and thus the scripture must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus understood it was all prophesied, it was all predicted, it was all part of the plan of his father that he should have to go through what he went through. Listen to those words again. The Son of Man goes just as it has been determined. Once again, we see this hand, we see this hand of God orchestrating all things in Jesus' life. But then he follows that up with this phrase, but woe to that man, namely Judas, by whom he is betrayed. When that word woe is used in the Bible, sometimes Jesus will use that against the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, sons of vipers, sons of hell. What Jesus is doing upon the religious leaders is he's issuing upon them what we call a covenantal curse. So first of all, Jesus is saying, all things in my life, including this betrayal, has been determined. And yet at the same time, he's saying... But woe to this man, Judas, this cursed man, for bringing out really what has been determined. And then you start, you start thinking about this and you really start grappling and you're kind of going, okay, well, all things are happening here, but now God is, God is still holding Judas responsible for what he what he did. Does that, for a lot of people, for a lot of people, this doesn't seem very fair, right? It doesn't seem very fair. This is, the, what, what Jesus is saying here is really, we need to understand this in many places we could go, but for the sake of time, I want to take you to two places, okay? Um, elsewhere in the Bible um, that, that demonstrate this idea of God planning all things that take place, but holding, and even evil, but holding people responsible for the evil that they commit in fulfillment of that plan. So I want to draw your attention to two passages. The first one is Acts verse 22, verse 22 and 23. We put that up there. Okay, very good. Um, draw your attention to this. This is very interesting. And this is all relating to Jesus again and God's plan and people being held responsible. The, the, whole, the, the context of Acts chapter 2 is this. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church. That Spirit fills the Apostle Peter, who was once timid and who once denied Jesus three times. It fills Peter to preach the gospel with power and with persuasion. And he's preaching to hundreds of Jewish men who are listening to him. And this is what he says at one point. He says, men of Nazareth. Okay, he's drawing attention to their Jewish background. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up 
by the definite plan, or other words, sometimes you'll see other translations using these words, determined will, and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, this is very interesting. There are some Christians who will look at this and they'll see the evil that happens in the world and they'll simply say, well, yeah, God's in control of it in the sense that he knows that it's going to happen. Foreknowledge. But if you look closely at the text, this is more than God knowing ahead of time what's going to happen. It's God planning it, God determining it. That's what Peter is saying. So God determines that Jesus should be crucified and killed But who's the one who does it? Does God himself, in a sense, directly kill Jesus? No. It's the lawless men, the hands of lawless men, who do this. These lawless men being more than just Judas through his betrayal, but we have the Roman government and Roman soldiers and Pilate combining with the religious leaders of Jesus' day who reject him. They're they're joining forces, if you will, in putting Jesus to death. All part of the definite will of God but they're held responsible. They're the lawless ones. And it's getting our noggins going, right? And so what's interesting here is notice what it says there in Acts 2, 22 and 23. He was killed by the... This didn't say he was killed by lawless men. Killed by the hands of lawless men. So it's very interesting. Now you've got two hands at play. You've got the hand of God and you've got the hands of evil men. God's sovereignty but also we have human responsibility, okay? God controlling all things, humans being held responsible. Look at the second one from Acts 4. In the city, more speech, in the city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, Herod and Pontius Pilate and Gentiles and the people of Israel, notice they're combining forces again, to do what? To do their evil deeds, to do whatever your, there's God's hand, to do what your hand and your will had predestined or predetermined to take place. Wow. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Now I get back to the original question or a couple of questions that I had in the beginning, like, well, that's, 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 that's pretty mind-boggling, that's pretty difficult because now you have God planning all things, nothing coming by chance, even the evil that happens in this world, but you're holding lawless individuals responsible. Isn't God responsible? I mean, it's all a part of his plan. Or is he not responsible? We say, no, the lawless men, these evil men who put Jesus to death, they're responsible. But how can that be? They're only carrying out the predetermined plan of God. How can you hold them responsible? See the difficulty here? This is why um, theologians have drawn a distinction. And whenever you teach the Bible, whenever you teach theology, um, I think it was St. Augustine, a church father, who said, um, "He he who distinguishes well thinks well. So theology is all about proper distinctions. So here's a a distinction that that theologians have made. They've said we need to distinguish between what we call the positive will of God and the permissive will of God. So by the positive will of God, we're saying God positively, as we've seen from the catechism in terms of the providential will of God, God positively by means of his hand directs all things that happen in this world so that nothing comes by chance, but all things come from his hand, both prosperity as well as difficulty. Both the good things as well as even the evil things. All of these things are part of the overall plan of God. 
But when it comes to the the, the matter of evil that occurs in this world, what theologians are very careful with this, and they say, well, what this is, is it's it's part of what we call the permissive will of God. And that term permission is used in the context of evil. So the idea is this. God orchestrates all that happens in this world, even the evil that happens in this world. But he does not, this is very important that we understand this, he does not coerce or force the hands of individuals to do the evil. What we have to understand is that these evil individuals naturally work according to their own natures, and because their nature is evil, they will commit that evil. So they're saying, and there's a certain level of mystery here, they're saying that yes, God determines all things, even from eternity, it's part of his overall eternal decree, but when it comes to evil, he's not forcing the hand of anyone, but they're simply acting according to their natural wills, which is evil, which is the case of Judas. Okay, or to put it kind of a little bit roughly, perhaps. Here you have Judas, one of the disciples of Jesus. We never get an indication in the Bible that God says, okay, Judas, you are part of my overall plan, and so now I want you to fulfill my plan for Jesus and his crucifixion so they can secure the redemption of my people. I want you to perform this evil act of betrayal upon him. And Judas goes like, no, no, I don't want to. And God says, well, it's part of my plan. No, no, I really don't. It's not, you know, God is not like a parent who wants a kid to do something uh, that the kid doesn't want to do. You never get an indication that Judas is fighting God. Judas is simply carrying out the evil that Satan has already sown in his heart. And he ends up betraying Jesus. So this is why we we talk about this distinction between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. In this case, Judas' responsibility. Now, is there a certain measure of, you know... Uh, mystery in this? Um, Sure there is, you know. But, you know, what we have to understand is that this whole issue of God's determination of all things and human responsibility or God's sovereignty and human responsibility, the Bible never really seeks to fully resolve those two tensions. It merely states them. just merely states them. So the question is, how how do we need to respond to that? And I think we need to respond to this with a, a, and I'm going to look in just a moment, the positive side to this. But, you know, regarding this whole matter of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, or God's determination and human responsibility and actions, there's, there, there needs to be a certain measure of humility in us, whereby we say, you know, um, we can't grasp this fully, but because it's stated in the Bible, and because we believe that there are things that God does that we don't understand because he is God and we are mere creatures. That while it's difficult for us to understand, it maybe is mysterious, nevertheless we accept it. We accept it. And in that regard, you know, as a pastor, when I pastor people, you know, they always, they always want answers from their pastor. You know, you become the, the answer man, and that's okay, it comes with the territory. But there are some times where a pastor has to say, you know, I see both things stated in the Bible, and I, I, I don't see how those things are, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, are always reconciled here below, but I agree that they're reconciled in heaven. I remember a, a seminary professor I had who gave a very simple illustration. He says, this is like a rope that goes from earth into heaven, you know? And it's, it's like, 
in, or, or two ropes that, that come from the sky in, down below. And we see these two ropes, and we see God's sovereignty, and we see human responsibility, and we can't, we can't really reconcile the relationship of those two ropes. They're two different ropes, but those ropes lead up into the sky, but they're hidden by the clouds. And, and we end up confessing and saying, these two, they seem ir- not reconciled here below, but we know that they're reconciled with God above, and we have to trust that. We can't see through the clouds, you know? And, and I think about that, where on the basis of the Bible, we, 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 we hear things like, I think of the great doxology that we sometimes sing here. Remember the Romans doxology? The Apostle Paul says, uh, if I remember it, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Or you think from the book of Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah 55, where uh, we read, as, um, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways, and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And then, of course, I just read, I won't read it again, but I read earlier from the book of Job. You know, Job, Job was a certain amount of mystery, but in the end, he had to go like this and say, there are these things that are too wonderful for me to know. And this is one of those issues. But quickly, one other thing, and then I want to draw to a close here, that doesn't mean that it's all mysterious, because what we realize, especially as God's children, is that when we look at adversity in the world, or especially when we look at our, the, our own experiences of adversity and difficulty and trial, and some of us have very deep trials, that we realize in the life of the child of God that God oftentimes will use in his overall plan in our lives, he will use the difficulties that we face in this life ultimately for our good. Ultimately for our good. And that too we have to trust. Um, We see that in the life of Job. We see that in the life of Joseph, where Joseph said to his brothers, that which has happened to me, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good. Um... How about even Jesus' life? You know? I mean, you say, boy, you know, you think of the definite plan of God for Jesus' life, and it was a difficult life, and it was a torturous life, and you think of his crucifixion, and all of that was, was the evil upon his life was carried about by lawless individuals. But think of the good that came from that. Ultimately, while, while God permitted in the life of Jesus, also as part of his overall plan, he, he permitted the things that took place in the life of Jesus for, for good. You say, what good was that? How about our redemption? How about our freedom from the guilt of, uh, and the power and penalty of sin? How about an eternal inheritance? All of these things. And also this, Jesus himself experienced good through the definite plan of God, which involved his own torture and his own death, which is exaltation at the right hand of God the Father. And one day, says Jesus, all people will bend the knee and bow the head to me. Good out of great evil. And some of us have experienced, I think, that as well. So that whatever adversity you go to and maybe go through and maybe that's happening to you right now, um, that's what the catechism says. We've got to be patient. We've got to be patient because God has a purpose in that. In the life of his children, he always brings to our lives a certain measure of good out of evil or adversity that comes our way. And we don't always realize that at the time. Sometimes it takes years. 
And in that regard, um, I want to I want to leave you with this, just kind of on a, a practical note. And I, I know I've mentioned this before, and I have to be careful. I, I don't mention it too many times. But in regard to this, I think it will illustrate kind of what we're looking at. You know, I've, I've, I've mentioned to you a number of times where um, uh, the, the death of my brother when he was 27 in a motorcycle accident. And when that happened, um, this, this is what happened to our family. And if you've ever experienced something like this, it's probably happened to you as well where um, at the time, within the first couple weeks of his death, you could see no good from it. I mean, there's no good. I mean, what? I mean, he, he was kind of like the prize boy of the family. You know, as parents, you don't want to say, well, I love one child more than another. And I don't think it was the case with my parents. They all loved us equally. But, but Jack had special gifts that were very closely tied to my dad's and musical gifts. So, and my dad being a music professor is a very close tie and they had that very open relationship with him. And, and within the overall plan of God, he was taken. It's like, what good is there? Um, and there didn't seem to be anything good. And I remember my dad saying, just bear with me a couple minutes here. I remember my dad saying um, to my mom, and, um, and my mom told me about this. She said that at that time, he said, uh, and he was a published composer, okay, over 300 pieces. And he, he said, I, no, no, no music looks good to me anymore. And my mom got really concerned because she thought, well, then his profession's over. He's never going to want to write anything or teach anything again. Then what happened is she said to him, um, you need to go to your office and you need to write. And so, you know, he did. And in the midst of profound grief, he ended up in one day, I believe it was, writing the most published or at least the most popular piece of music that he had ever written. And it was called The Song of Triumph. And actually, a fellow colleague at the college analyzed that work and wrote a paper on it um, relating how deep grief um, sometimes spurs the greatest creativity in us. And it was called Song of Triumph, and it's been performed in many places also in Europe. And then it was my brother's death that also caused my mom to write a book, which was published by Baker Book Company called Song of Triumph. And, but in addition to that, what would happen is what happened was my my parents started a, a, a grief relief group um, that ministered to parents who lost their children. They would have never done that if my brother never died. And then when my dad go, he would go to various conventions and what we call adjudications. He would judge musical competitions in the state of Iowa and elsewhere at the high school and college level. And, and, and then sometimes the, what these choirs would do, they, they would actually sing this piece of Song of Triumph. And then before they would actually perform, there were, there were sometimes hundreds of kids behind him, but there were mass audiences before him. And then what he would do is he would spend just a couple minutes explaining the background of the death of his son and the glories of the gospel, ministering to them as a result of that. And then one final thing, and this is where it gets kind of weird, but I began to think about it, and I think, you know what, I wouldn't even be here standing before you right now if my brother hadn't died. Probably not. Because um, I met, some of you know the story, I met my Joy in front of my brother's casket at a viewing. She was part of my dad's choir. And then we got to know each other after that. We got married, had kids, went into the ministry together, and here we are now. And I, I, I started thinking about, it, like, my brother never died. I would have probably never entered into the ministry, and I wouldn't be here right now. This, you know, this is, this is, do you see the mystery of this? Do you see the difficulty of this? But for the child of God, 
While we accept mystery and we can't explain all things, that's okay. But we do know as the children of the king, that as the Bible says, God works out all things for the good, both good and evil. He works out all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's the beauty of the doctrine of providence. Maybe I'm not covering everything here this afternoon, but hopefully I covered some of the main points. So we embrace mystery, but we also embrace the goodness of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ. Let's, let's think on these things, and then we'll have just a little bit of a discussion. I don't want to take long this afternoon, but we'll have discussion in just a moment. Before we do, let's, um, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, we come to you this afternoon, and we recognize, O oh Lord, uh, as the writers of the Bible do upon occasion, the mystery of your ways. And Father, we pray that, that that mystery may not result in agitation for us, but may actually result in humility and childlike acceptance, but also with the understanding that in the life of a child of God, in the midst of even things that we cannot ultimately explain, you do promise to bring about good in our lives, which is something oftentimes that we don't even really understand until years later. So thank you for this, Lord, and we pray, oh God, that you help us to think upon these things and create in us, through this sermon, greater wonder for your providential ways and appreciation for those providential ways we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.